You're inside the war room, Ryan Ray, once again here as always, and today we get to talk about an interesting topic that we haven't spent much time, if any really, on the podcast, and that is the country of Nigeria, and the book is called Formation, The Making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation, with Fola Fagule and Fili Falumemi, and as you know, long-time listeners, um, Annunciation is not my strong suit. Um, so we'll link to those names properly um, in the show notes. Um, but uh, it was a wonderful speech to Fola and Fie on the podcast. We will also link to their podcast. They have a show that they've done about the books and the books. So be sure to check all of that out. And without further ado, let's get into this episode. Well, gentlemen, it is lovely to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Very very well. I'm good as well. Excellent to be here. Yes, yes. Thank you for doing this as we are spread out across the globe. So time zones and internet and all that is uh, bringing us together. So I, I appreciate it, which is part of, I want to start maybe today and, and work better backwards. One of the things that, that I've really um, come to appreciate over the past, um, I think, seven years since I've been going to Africa is the ability to connect with people and how that's reshaping um, somewhere like Nigeria, but also the world at large is the ability for us to communicate what's happening in real time. And, and I always tell the story, my favorite phone app is WhatsApp. And I found that in South Africa when I was down there because they were all using WhatsApp. I was like, wow, this is a really good piece of technology. Um, but it allows me to communicate um, in a way that obviously, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, you couldn't. Um, I'm curious from y'all's perspective as doing a, a history book and then where we're at today, um, when we look forward maybe for the next 100 years, how much do you think modern technology will change how we look at the development of a country like Nigeria? Okay, I think uh, I could probably start. I mean, um, you know, without technology, we could not have written this book. So we collaborated pretty much online. Um, I live in the UK, Fola lives in, in Nigeria. And, you know, even though we traveled back and forth, but the bulk of this book, well, a, a decent chunk of this book uh, was written in the year just before lockdown, so we couldn't do any promotion. And but then even with that, you know, we ended up doing a lot of collaboration online, you know, writing the book. So things have quite changed, like you said, you know, seven years, even probably a bit more. I live in the UK. It's I'm, I feel like I'm plugged into Nigeria on a daily basis. You know, you know, WhatsApp. WhatsApp is probably not that big in America, but in Nigeria and the rest of Africa, it's massive. It is, you know, I can connect with people on a daily basis. So going forward, we're seeing a lot of that as well in the technology space. So we're seeing a lot of the way uh, technology companies are being started. You can actually start a company in Nigeria today and have a global outlook, you know, from day one, where you can actually produce something. We have, we're seeing also a lot of things like remote work in Nigeria. So loads of people in Nigeria, they, they live in Nigeria, but they're working for US companies, European companies, all of that was not possible even a decade ago. So I think we'll see, probably I'll say in one area that I would um, really be interested in is this area of remote work where people are based in Nigeria, but they're working globally, being able to market their skills um, across the globe. So that would be an interesting uh, thing to look out for. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, go, go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's something that we say a lot, that technology has changed the world. But I think that you feel it uh, perhaps even more 
when you, if you grew up in Nigeria, like I did, uh, and only sort of got on the internet in the late nineties, uh, and sort of my generation, certainly people of my age are people who have lived, you know, as young people experiencing what life was like when communication took ages to do when you had to write letters and post letters, uh, when you, when you had to get most of your cultural knowledge from magazines, uh, and when there was such a huge delay between when information, when things happened and when you heard about it. Versus now watching young people, people sort of who were my age when the internet first arrived in Nigeria and just seeing how globally native they are from day one. And I think a lot of people who are not in Nigeria, people who are not in Africa, they underestimate the extent to which we have a globally native population uh, in a place like Nigeria. And um, these are people who understand uh, the language of the rest of the world. These are people who would be able to get along with you easily, uh, even though they've never been to the United States. These are people who understand events, happenings, cultural uh, activities, the music, just, you know, they, they understand, they're local uh, to, to the world uh, and everything is, is happening in their backyard. You know, they're making friends on Instagram that um, the kinds of friends that it would have been, kinds of friendships that would have been impossible to imagine uh, when I was growing up. Uh, and they're collaborating, and you're seeing it in the music. I think the music industry is where you're seeing it in, in, in most practical terms, where you're seeing all these collaborations between massive international artists and, and the Nigerian ones who, who are coming up. So, uh, you know, I'm sure you, you, you'd have heard of this song that did really well last year, Essence, uh, by a Nigerian artist called Whiskid, who uh, collaborated with uh, Justin Bieber. And it became the biggest song in the world uh, last year. So that's technology, that's the kind of thing that would not, that's the kind of close fusion that would not happen so easily in the past. And I think that we're gonna see more and more of that in the future. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, as you project out, you look at how um, not only Nigeria, but, but the world will be reshaped and how we'll think about things. One of the things that I've said for many years now is, is that the more we can, we can um, influence cross-country, um, investment. So, you know, from the U.S. to Nigeria, from Nigeria to the U.S., or insert two countries here, the less likely we are to go to war with each other, right? Because um, whatever you say about it, <clears throat> at this very financial level, if we have an interest in Nigeria, um, and I'm not talking about a government aid interest, I'm talking about like a practical business interest, um, um, then we're going to be like, whoa, 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 hold on. Why are we, why are we bombing them? Why are we sanctioning them? What's going on here? Um, it makes you take an interest in there. Now, as you mentioned, you have music, which is a completely different sector, right? Um, you have people who are listening to it. They'll look up an artist. They'll see who the artist is, what their background is, what they think, what they believe. And so the world is really, and I think during the, you talk about the, the pandemic impacting your book. I think that during the pandemic, we've also learned is that we can find out, especially in the West, it's kind of been neglected, right? We can find out so much more about the world, whereas maybe Africa and Nigeria kind of already kind of knew that going into the pandemic, where they they were aware of what they could see, whereas the West was kind of naive to it because we've been kind of exposed to this um, internet culture for so long. We kind of have taken it for granted, if you will. Yes, I think, you know, like you mentioned, that, that, that first point is, is pretty key. You know, we're seeing a lot more investments. And this is not just even investments by, by big companies or big banks. We're seeing, I was reading recently about a, an, an angel investor based in the UK. So this is just an ordinary guy who made some money a few years ago when he sold his company. And this guy has done so many 
angel investment in Nigeria. I'm not sure he's actually stepped into Nigeria yet. I'm not sure he's actually actually been to Nigeria, but he's done angel investment, just writing checks to Nigerian companies. You know, about I think he's done about four or five. And this is a guy, I mean, he invests across the globe, but you know, it's one guy sitting in the UK and putting money in Nigerian startups, you know, and then and that's just at the individual level. You're seeing it as well with uh, venture capitalists, you know, who are putting their money in. So the fusion is quite good on the music level, on the financing level. So yes, definitely. Um, I think this is one area where potentially people on the ground, you know, the ordinary businessman, the ordinary angel investor, they're way ahead of the governments. From a from a uh, government point of view, the U.S. government policy hasn't really change in Nigeria, it's just the same old, you know, just make sure, don't blow it up, you know, keep it quiet there and then don't don't make us have to worry about you. And then we throw some aid your way now and again, nothing too serious, almost kind of like they've seeded it off to China to do all the kind of heavy lifting investment. But at the basic, at the ordinary level, you know, I'll say definitely, I'm seeing more US investors, more UK investors, ordinary people, in Nigeria that even, you know, going toe-to-toe with the Chinese, with the ordinary um, Chinese as well. So on that level, I think um, the West is still competitive in, in places like Nigeria, but at a government level, there's still a lot more to be done. It's still all just, you know, aid, um, you know, don't give us anything to worry about. We have bigger issues elsewhere, you know, but rather than that actual collaboration that can that can drive things. So yeah, definitely, I'm, I'm hoping we will see a lot more of things like that, more, you know, more checks, 20K, 100K, 10 million, that sort of thing. More coming from the US, people investing in Nigeria, and, you know, who knows where it might go from there. Yeah, you know, this this is a, this int- uh, reminds me of some interesting topic that reminds me of something we, we spotted uh, in formation. Uh, and, you know, so you talked about how individuals are sort of clued in uh, or are clued in uh, far ahead of government uh, into what is happening in places like Nigeria uh, and how technology is accelerating that trend. The irony of it is that this was also the case uh, if you go back 100, 200 years ago, uh, if you look at the history of Nigeria, the people who showed the most interest originally, the most curiosity, who wanted to know and understand about what existed in these lands. They were private individuals uh, and they were the ones who uh, who showed the interest, they were the ones who incurred the most risk, including uh, at the risk uh, of their lives, uh, many of them, to try and explore and figure out what was going on here before even the idea of colonialism uh, ever you know, truly took hold, certainly in, in this part of the world. Um, and so you had that individual curiosity, that individual interest, and we cover that quite a bit in formation. We talk about something called the Clapham sect era. And we talk about uh, men like Henry Venn, uh, who, was a, who was a sort of British uh, missionary uh, of, the, of the CMS uh, in, in London. And Henry Venn never visited Nigeria, but he was one of the most impactful people in the development of sort of 19th century uh, Nigeria. And it was everything from investments in, in human capital, uh, investments in institutions, investments in the church, uh, all kinds of investments that, that you know, he sort of uh, imagined and came up with and, and made happen to, 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 um, to implement some of his ideas for, for what the development of, of that, those lands ought to look like. But to cut a long story short, right, it's what you're seeing today, as, as we mentioned, 
is that technology is allowing human interaction uh, on a level that is over and beyond anything that governments can imagine. And I think that that's going to have major implications for how sort of foreign policy, how trade, uh, and how the interaction between Africa and the rest of the world looks in the next sort of 100 years. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I've learned is d- doing business internationally is that people are far more interested in what I think about, you know, people in country or in the opportunities in country than what the government policy between the two countries is, right? So, you know, the, the U.S. government exit bank might have this promise or the Nigeria bank might have this promise or wherever might have this promise. And like, well, what do you think about it? Because what they want to know is, is, um, you know, who do I know and how, how do I trust them? Because it's all, we're all, you know, it's connection based, it's human based. And, and we've, we've been able to bridge that gap now uh, through technology. So I'm, I'm, I think that that is, again, um, we can't touch on, but I think that's what excites me so much about what's going uh, forward is that you can make those connections, you can build those relationships so easy, so much easier now, um, to your point, people investing in Nigeria and they've never even Every step foot there, so it's it's always a good reminder, especially for those who are kind of outside of the international space, that um, it's a different world now, right? It's just it's just a different world now, and um, we kind of live in it, so we kind of take it for granted almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, absolutely. But um, okay, so let's go back now. Let's kind of kind of set where we're at today. Let's go back to how we got to where we are, um, which is obviously. Um, you know, uh, I guess for the sake of conversation, I always say this when I talk about Africa. When you talk about Africa or a country in Africa, um, it's it's very hard to talk about such a thing because a country like Nigeria has a very rich history, uh, a lot of different um, people in there, a lot of different perspectives. Uh, so Africa as, as a whole is very tough. West Africa is very tough. So it's very hard to kind of talk about these topics. Um, on the flip side, you can narrow it down so much that you can you could probably make a book that's a thousand pages and not cover it all. So how did you guys go about outlining the skeleton of what you want to talk about where you kind of thread that needle of we're getting important stuff, but we're not um, missing the high points, but we're also not just, you know, filling the book full of facts. Okay. I think I'll start off. So um, I'll say, you know, when we started talking about this, you know, we wanted to write a book about Nigeria and it was kind of, I guess it was a good idea just so basically that we came to, came to the, the topic with an open mind, but um. You know, when we started to talk and Fola, you know, made the point a few times that, look, the jihad um, in that uh, kicked off in 1804 in Nigeria was a seminal moment in Nigeria's history. You know, and I, I didn't have any strong opinions on that. You know, I mean, the jihad, yes, it was a big deal. We know it happened. But then you could also say, you know, several other things happened you know, over the 19th century and even before then. But, you know, the more we talked about it, the more we looked at it. And I, I came around to that idea that, you know, that jihad that kicked off, um, if, you, if you're going to look for a starting point for what is the Nigerian state today, it was as good as any other. It had a strong, a strong claim as any other as any other event, at, at the very least, you know, that, you know, we could start off the Nigerian story at this point and we'll be able to tell a coherent story and a story that flows all the way to where we wanted to end up, which is basically, if you want a physical symbol, you know, the Nigerian map of how it is today, what, what is, and it's been remarkably stable for all that everyone has said, you know, the Nigerian map, as you see it today, has been that way since pretty much 1914 you know, when the North and South were amalgamated. So our story was basically getting to 
that amalgamation point and what can we what could we have said as the trigger or the starting point and you know the jihad was basically that that and for the simple reason that you know the jihad eh, before the jihad the north and even the south and everywhere else in nigeria they were at best what you might call a loose federation of sister states so they had relationships people talked they traded they did things with each other but really when it came to things like um defense or fighting you really were on your own you know but the jihad what the jihad did was the people who kicked off the jihad they had a visionary idea of an empire right they, they were motivated by the um abbasid caliphate uh, you know and they, they wanted to build their own caliphate and they were not going to stop at just one part of the country even though uh one part of the north even though things really kicked off in the in the northwest um they were not going to stop there they were going to they wanted to build a proper huge caliphate that went from uh, end to end and that jihad kicked off that process and at the end of jihad what we had was for the first time you know what you could say was northern nigeria you know it didn't cover all of northern nigeria but that jihad pulled together so many different states and you then began to have an outline of a, a huge chunk of what is nigeria today which is the northern um uh, nigeria so i think you know as a starting point that was um the reason why we sort of chose the jihad you know as, as i mentioned as strong a claim if not stronger than any other seminal events in nigerian uh history and and, and i want to, uh, to follow up just to, to take that one step further is you have the jihad but you also have unique geographical features that maybe some people in the west aren't, aren't familiar with maybe um you could unpack that uh as well uh, follow on oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we, um, we spend a lot of time reading, uh, certainly I've spent a lot of, of, of my, of my free time reading about, um, the history of, of Africa generally, um, and the history of the, of the lands that, that currently make up Nigeria. And certainly from, and then I've also traveled a fair amount around Nigeria. I think for years I've also traveled a fair amount uh, around Nigeria. Uh, the other thing is I work in infrastructure. Uh, so I, I work in building things. Uh, and so I've always been struck by, by uh, geography uh, as an important aspect of, of understanding history. Uh, and so we were always going to do something that had a heavy uh, leaning uh, into uh, geography as a way to understand why things are the way they are. But certainly if you travel around Nigeria a fair amount, uh, you will understand very quickly just how important uh, those those two rivers are, uh, and I, I do think that it's it's a point that escapes most Nigerians for for whatever reason. Uh, but it's an obvious point uh, just on the face of it if you look at it, just how important those two rivers are for, as we said, information at once bringing the people together, but also separating them. Uh, even if you look at sort of the the boundaries between most most states in modern Nigeria today you will notice that a lot of those borders are around or along the rivers. So the river served as, as a natural, even, until, even up until today, uh, as a natural boundary uh, for, for, for sovereignty and, and for ownership of land and for control of territory, really. So that, that was always going to factor heavily in, in what we were doing. I think the other point, just to add to what we had said earlier, is that once we decided the starting point, and we decided the ending point. It was about reading very widely about what are all of the things and all of the events and all of the milestones that happened in between. And we literally had a master's spreadsheet 
in which we were simply plugging in um, the, you know, different dates and, and what happened uh, in the, uh, at these times. And then all of a sudden, it's like a puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle. And you begin to see things that you ordinarily would not have seen if you didn't have it up in a, in a spreadsheet in front of you. You begin to understand how a certain event a decade ago potentially had an impact on a, on a, on a certain event a decade later. And then you go and do some more research and, and voila, you find that there was indeed uh, a connection uh, between those two things. So a lot of it was about um, reading very widely, having a very open mind and just simply following well, what the facts were saying to us. So on that, um, as you're going through this, this puzzle spreadsheet, putting these things together, what are some things that maybe you guys um, didn't anticipate finding that you found and you had to reframe how you thought about the formation of Nigeria? Yeah, I can, yeah, I think I can start I'll... on this one. Okay. I, yeah, I can start on this one. I hope I won't say what, uh, what you were going to say already, in which case you're going to have to think of something else. Um, <laughs> but I, I think for both of us, I think one thing was clear is that, you know, the, con the construction of the conversation about African history, very often people talk about slavery, uh, people talk about colonialism, right? And these are sort of big picture events that obviously had huge impacts on, on the peoples uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of Africa as of today. And there's not, not, no taking anything away from that. And, and that featured heavily in formation as well. It's just a reality. But there was something that we spotted that I think you wouldn't, that, that's probably the one unique thing about that. Well, there are a number of unique things about formation, but I think certainly our unique contribution to the uh, historiography uh, of Nigeria was identifying that period in time after slavery and before colonialism, when literally it was just private agency, private agency of Europeans who were interested in the, in the area and private agency of, uh, of Africans who, uh, who'd acquired Western education or traditional rulers uh, who had no Western education, but who were interested in the development of their people. And that's sort of what happened for most of the 19th century, certainly the first half of the 19th century, in, uh, in, in the area now known as Nigeria. It was a lot of private agency, international and local, that was driving affairs. There was really no international colonialism that was happening at that time. Uh, there was still slavery, domestic slavery, but the international slave trade had, had been put to an end for the most part. You know, there were still pockets of illegal um, uh, slave trading going on. But for the most part, the, the heavy sort of legal legalized uh, trading of, of human beings had, had been put to an end. And what you just had was private individuals that were trying to figure out what's the best way uh, for, for us to, to navigate the world that we live in. Uh, and this was before, you know, European colonialism really found its voice and found its mission in Africa, uh, which then culminated in colonialism that the, the way that we know it. So it was important for us to sort of talk about that period of time before colonialism really grabbed the agenda and to imagine what could have been if colonialism would not have uh, become the dominant ideology. Uh, but also very important for the future because now that colonialism is over, we need to, well, certainly over in any kind of formal way, we need to think about what can we learn from that period uh, of, of time about how we should conduct ourselves and how we can compete 
in a, in a globalized world because the world was globalizing even then. And our people and our leaders were contending with globalization and they were doing it uh, without uh, colonialism being sort of over their shoulders, uh, if you like. So that was one thing that we, we found interesting and, and spotted. So yeah, I hope I didn't steal your, your thunder. No, 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 not too, not too much. But I, uh, sort of, I'll probably say two things uh, linked to what you said. Uh, one of the things that surprised me, and I think we, we both found this was how um, persistent and how transformative education was as soon as it got into, you know, especially the first set of, so, so these were the returnee slaves who, I mean, this was basically, you know, as, as Fola mentioned, when the slave trade was still going on, but illegally, and then you had the Royal Navy interdicting ships on the Atlantic. So basically, uh, a, a ship will have slaves smuggling, trying to get them out. The Royal Navy will stop them, rescue all the slaves, and then take them to what is now Freetown in Sierra Leone, down the coast, uh, West Africa. And then these people will be exposed to education. And it was just so transformative. And from whole cloth, you know, from literally from nothing. And when I'm, I'm talking about these were people, I mean, if someone was a slave at that point in time, they were usually the lowest of the low in society. But, you know, being rescued on the Atlantic Ocean, taking to Freetown, giving them an education, and returning and becoming an elite, a whole brand new elite. And that effect of education, one of the things we talked about for Lana was that it is so persistent even till today. So we're talking about mid-19th mid century. It's persistent till today. Once education had entered the family, it stayed pretty much all the way through. So, you know, it's a lesson for us today um, in terms of, you know, as a country, Nigeria, as everyone has different ideas of how to develop, but it's almost as if a banker, right, that you cannot go wrong if we invest in the development of our human capital. Oil has messed Nigeria up quite a lot. And, you know, uh, a natural resource it messes people up because it's just so easy money and all that we haven't spent that money um you know investing in 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 our human capital at all you know and we're coming to a point whereby oil is on its way out now you know we have another opportunity to say look okay maybe we'll focus because when you look at nigeria you know just before crude oil we had palm oil and palm oil basically gave away and crude oil. i hope so another natural resource doesn't come along again and then it just basically changes the focus and just you know increases those bad incentives so yeah i, I think that's one lesson and the other lesson for me was um it increased my sympathy of a lot of uh of a lot of historical nigerian characters and when you dig into what was going on especially as, as we did where you take a global view of what's happening you realize that a lot of people who sometimes get a bad rap in Nigerian history uh, were just people who were had no good options in front of them at the time, you know, and they were doing things not because they wanted to, but because they were picking what was the, the, the least worst out of a bunch of really bad uh, options, you know, and it happened, it happened quite a lot. You know, you had people who basically if you take just a distance from afar, looking at it, so you're just looking at, uh, just taking a, a bird's eye view of what happened, you're like, oh, this one was a colonial collaborator, or this one only facilitated um, Europeans, uh, colonialists to, to take over the country, or this one was a traitor, that sort of thing. But when you dig deep inside, you look at it down. What options did this person have? You know, the Europeans came with big guns, you know what I mean, the, 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 the huge machine guns. There was, it was, what, what, could, what else could they have done? And you found, a lot of people acting 
you know, in that way, in the sense that they were only just doing what they thought, you know, I mean, okay, this is bad, 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 you know, which is the least worst, and then we take that, you know, so I, I guess I'll say, you know, in summary that, yeah, my sympathy for certain, a number of historical Nigerian characters who had been probably just dismissive of, or just uh, took a, you know, flattened view of, you know, my, my sympathy for them sort of increased in the sense that, you know, I don't know what else this person could have done. So even this thing, if it looks bad now, probably, um, probably, probably this was just, you know, what they had. So yeah, definitely those two things. And, and out of a bunch of uh, whole different things. Okay, so you guys touched on a couple of things there that, that I found interesting. One, uh, I'll make sure I got you right, is that um, during the, the slave trade, the, the slaves would escape, um, and then that would allow them to go down to Sierra Leone, I think you said, uh, get educated, and then come back to Nigeria, and they would, they would change their, their social status. Um, so how, <clears throat> when you look at some of these historical events, you look at it and you go, okay, there's a lot of bad stuff happening, and then there's stuff like this that happens. So how do we look at something like colonialism and slavery and how, how should we view those events obviously there's a lot of bad but there's some some of these unique stories that you mentioned um do, do is it something that because in the west it feels like at least it, it's a almost a taboo to talk about and i want to get to a point in society where we can we can unpack these things and we can say okay this is what we understand that happened this is what was good that came from it this is all the bad that came from it here's the downstream things and here's how we prevent those things from happening how, how do you guys grapple with that um or how did you grapple with that as you went through the the research portion of the book and putting it in the book so okay. so this is okay. a, this is yeah this is this is a great point right because the tendency certainly uh, well, it's probably always been the tendency, but certainly in, in, in the modern world, in the world that we live in today in 2022, the tendency is to take radical and extreme positions about things. And so, you know, you're never going to hear somebody uh, in polite company say that they want to talk about colonialism uh, with nuance. They're, they're going to be ostracized pretty quickly. Um, because it's not a conversation that people want to, um, to have a nuanced view on. And I understand why that is the case. It's the same thing with, you know, certainly the transatlantic slave trade or, or any kind of international slave trade that happened. Let's even leave the, the domestic slavery for a second. People, and, and that as well, by the way, people don't want to have a nuanced conversation about that. People take extreme positions immediately. Either they're extremely defensive uh, of the trade that their ancestors were involved in uh, as traders, uh, or they're, they're extremely offended uh, and uh, emotive about the fact that, that this happened at all to their, to, their, to their forebears, to their ancestors, and that uh, they, they were taken away from, stolen away from their lands and, and taken away to faraway places uh, and, and became strangers and then suffered so much discrimination and all of that. So it's impossible to talk about it with any kind of nuance. I think what we did in formation um, was to avoid the politics uh, of, 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 the, of these subjects. Uh, and so you're not going to find uh, anybody, and certainly we have not found anybody who's read the book and said, oh, this is, this is a sort of apologetics for, for colonialism, or this is uh, apologetics for slave trade. No, we, we described these things uh, in all of their gory detail as they were. What we did not do is to make, for the most part, to make moral judgments on anybody. Uh, and we describe the political and economic conditions, both in Africa and in Europe, that were driving 
these uh, affairs. And if you, even if you look at it in the terms of, of the modern world that we live in, we understand that political decisions are very often uh, the result of, uh, of, of global trends that are, that are making countries make decisions. It is true that individuals have a huge impact in, in creating those trends and, and determining and individual incentives have a huge impact. But from a histor historical perspective, there's really not, at least for you and I thought, that there's not much to gain from simply, you know, uh, labeling certain people bad and, and then others good. Um, what was more interesting for us was to understand how people dealt with the, the circumstances that they found themselves in. I mean, there's some instances, there was one instance, I think, where we, we just could not but make you know, a moral judgment. And, and that's the case of when we talked about, uh, about Leopold, uh, King Leopold of Belgium, who really, you know, there's just no way to look at it that is not uh, morally objectionable, uh, what, what Leopold did in Congo. Um, but other than that, I think we stayed away from moralizing and focused really on, on the reality. And where something bad happened, we stated that something bad happened. Um, uh, and where something good happened, we stated that something good happened. Um, and I think that a lot of people appreciated that approach uh, in, in, in some of the reviews and the comments that we've seen, um, because again, it's not as though we're apologizing for anything, but it is um, a case of uh, taking uh, an approach that is not judgmental, uh, that is not driven by any agenda or any politics, uh, and it's not trying to paint anybody good or bad, it's just trying to tell a story. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, um, it's, um, there's no shortage of politics on, on this subject. So there's really nothing we're going to add to that. What we wanted to do was we told the story and, you know, on things like slavery, um, I mean, there's, there's no shine away from it. You know, this was a hugely uh, terrible thing, you know, and, and what we do, what we tried our best to, to describe, especially from some characters of, you know, one of the the, I mean, the largest characters in Nigerian history, larger than life character, and probably the most outstanding Nigerian of the 19th century, uh, Bishop Samuel Ajayi Crowder, we made sure to describe, you know, the fact that he was once a slave and he had been traded at one point for a horse. You know, he again, he had been held in, in what is now Lagos. Uh, back then, they used to watch the Atlantic Ocean and just basically from the lights, you could tell when the Royal Navy was patrolling. So they had thought that, you know, maybe the Royal Navy had patrolled all the way. And then once they thought the coast was clear, they'll put the slaves on a, on a ship and try to ship them off to the Americas. And it was this good fortune that, you know, I think they had miscalculated. His sellers had miscalculated. And when they had put them on the ship, the Royal Navy still interdicted them, took him. To, uh, took him and all the others to, to Sierra Leone. But then this man, you know, he got an education in Sierra Leone and came back and established schools, established businesses and became a giant of Nigerian history. And I think the lesson in there for us is that, you know, here is a, a perfect example of what slavery did, right? Ajayi Crowder was a nobody, you know, he would have died. He probably just ended up somewhere, just like any other. But, you know, in a sample, in a, who knows, maybe there were 20 of them, but in a random sample of people who are destined for a life of slavery, you could actually pick out one giant out of there. How many, you know, how many did we miss out on? 
how many great people did we miss out on just because of this system? You know, and so, so we try to tell that story. And it wasn't just also, it wasn't just also the, the slaves who were uh, taken abroad, you know, put on ships and taken abroad. There was a lot of slavery internally. And we described that as well. You know, at one point, you know, close to almost half of the population of the Soho Caliphate were under some type of slavery. And, you know, one of the things we talk about is we have a good understanding of what uh, transatlantic slavery was, especially in America. So we've all watched the movies. We've watched um, Amistad. You know, we've watched 12 Years a Slave and all that. And we know how brutal the life of a slave in America was. Um, what we have not really talked about and what we try to describe in the book is, you know, Nigerian slavery, uh, the domestic slavery was, was brutal, but in a different way. So while in America, a slave will wake up to floggings and beatings and just uh, that kind of daily terror in the local slave, probably a Nigerian slave would not wake up to that, but where Nigerian slavery was brutal was because uh, it wasn't rooted in capitalism. So if somebody in say uh, uh, Georgia, for example, wanted to buy slaves, you know, you go to a market or something, you wouldn't get on a horse and then go raid somewhere in Mississippi for, you know, you could buy a slave. But the domestic slavery that, was, that we had in Nigeria was, you know, raiding was a huge part of it. And that part was quite brutal. So basically people wanted slaves, they would just basically raise an army and then go terrorize the village and capture as many people as possible. So we try to describe that as well, and you know, for people to understand. So there's no shying away from that. I mean, it's, it's, it's our history, it's our story, and we have to be able to grapple and understand um, how the legacy of this, how it continues to affect us in different ways than what you might see in America. It's our history, it's our, it's our history, it's for us to deal with. Nobody's going to come, to come deal with uh, that for Nigeria, you know, because the impact, the way it affects us is different. Um, the way the way he affects uh, African Americans in America is probably slightly uh, different. So you know, there's there's a lot of nuance in the story, like Fola mentioned. Uh, it might not be popular, but there's you know we we try to do it as dispassionately um, as possible. And even though our story ends in around about 1914, when colonialism was really just kicking off, uh, you know, so we don't really get into. Uh, the depth of colonialism in terms of, you know, how we actually really played out. But, you know, we could see at the start, the start of it, the shape of it, um, and we describe, um, you know, a lot of it was violent. There's no, there's no shine away from that. Um, you know, colonial power was, uh, was put on the country through force of arms, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. But then there, was a, there was also a bit more, a bit more to it than that. You know, we saw stories about where, 12 Europeans would land in the country and raise an army of thousands to go fight another part of the country. We try to get into that story as well. That why were they able to do that? And this is not a story that is unique to Nigeria. I mean, you could go into Mexican history when, you know, Cortez, when he landed in Mexico, you know, probably with 20 people and they're able to raise a local army to fight the Aztecs, the people who the Aztecs have been horizon uh, locally. So those stories, you know, we try to get into those stories as well to find out why, why did these people feel the need to, to collaborate in that way? You know, we leave some hints for that. Readers are free to judge or to, to reach any conclusion that they, they, they want to. But the story, like you said, is nuanced and it's complicated. Well, I, I think going back to the technology thing, um, a large reason this book was written, you guys said, was because of technology. 
which means we get a new conversation about about Nigeria at large um, because of technology. And I think as we move forward, um, we have people who can look at these complicated issues. They can kind of slice them up, um, go into the history, pull out some nuggets, and then the, the public at large can read that, have these conversations and dissect them. Um, and, and I think that's a very beautiful thing because we talk about colonialism or slavery. There's, there's, there's all kinds of, I was trying to look for one of my books um, I have on U.S. slavery. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a slave narrative. And so one of the slave narratives, um, I think it's a lady, I can't remember. And, and, and she talks about, um, they would have these people that come around in the U.S. that would look at the, at the, um, um, where the slaves were at to see what was going on. And she's in, in, in I got things like, she, and she was saying that, you know, she, had to have the, the, the their master would say, hey, listen, if you act up while they're here, you know, it's gonna be very bad on you. Um, and, and so you you read that narrative and you're like, huh, wow, okay, well that shapes how you read other stories about the slaves. Now it doesn't negate everything over here, but it also gives a little color to these stories. And so I think these are things that as you mentioned, it, it's it's frustrating because on some level, you know, you feel like today if you say the wrong thing, then you're you're ostracized from society. But also, it's a. It, I'm I'm very encouraged by um, the the work that you guys are doing and other people are doing because now you can you can read you can kind of go in here and say well you know this story and I was thinking as you were talking if we see someone today um, let's take a a woman in an abusive relationship she comes out of it she goes to college she gets her degree she becomes successful we all celebrate the woman right and yet it's a horrible situation that she come from. And, and, and it, even in real time, it's hard to understand for us to say, well, are we mad perpetually? Do we celebrate? We, still, we feel like we should celebrate. And so it's even harder, it feels like, when we go back in history to read those stories to understand what motive, what, what uh, emotions do we impute to those situations because we weren't there. Um, but but those things happen. And so it, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And so I, I think that you guys are right that it is kind of um, unfortunately toxic, but also I want to push on that and say, hey, we want to talk about these things because there's a way to talk about them in which we realize that we're, we're not trying to be um, controversial. We're just trying to understand, right? And to your point about education, um, this is one of the ways we begin to understand different cultures and different um, backgrounds and, and how we, how globalization impacts all of this. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, uh, yeah, for go on, sorry. Yeah, no, there, there's certainly a lot of understanding that, that needs, to be, needs to be done. Um, I mean, you know, politics everywhere it exists. I mean, politics has, there's a very good reason why, why politics exists. And there's, there's a, you know, perfectly valuable outcomes uh, from political discourse. Um, the challenge is that it, it can also very often harden um, into like positions that, that are almost, uh, you know, impossible to, to dislodge. Um, and and that's I think I think that's what's unfortunate because I don't believe that people genuine people who truly want to understand history I don't think that you can do it if you start with a very um, hardcore political uh, position I think that you're going to end up where you want to end up uh, so if you start if you start up with a very hardcore political view you you will find what you're looking for. In the historical narrative, and and you will justify what you want to what you want to justify. I think what is important for people uh, like I think for you and I, who are just curious uh, people. I mean, we, we do have strong political views, both of us, different political views, both of us. Um, but we're not trying to certainly when it comes to the story of Nigeria's history, 
We're not trying to infuse the story with those uh, political views. We're trying to uh, help uh, get understanding uh, to, 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 um, and to transmit understanding to as wide an audience as possible in non-political terms, in terms that help people understand their country better and help them make decisions of their own. So, you know, one interesting thing is we've had people who've read <laughs> Formation and they've arrived at polar opposite views uh, from other people who've read the same book. And that's excellent from my perspective. That's exactly, you know, what it is, but nobody's going to read it and be feel indoctrinated uh, or feel like, uh, you know, they've been proselytized to or, or you know, it's, it's just shown of any kind of demagoguery. Uh, and it's really about uh, you making up your own mind, really. Yeah, there's a saying that someone said, history, if you read history uh, enough and wild enough, it, it will make you uncomfortable. You know, because you you're gonna come across stories that you're not you're not quite sure. Yeah, and that's and that's fine. I mean, that discomfort is a good thing. You know, I think that's that's a sign exactly. that you're learning something. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about maybe you, you talk about the reception. I am curious, kind of working through a book like this. Um, what has been um, some surprising feedback that you guys have gotten from the book? I'll say. I'm mean, so I'll start off. I'll, I'll say, people like you. You know. A random DM or Twitter or email just drops now and again. And, you know, we've not been able to do any uh, proper promotion again because the book came out in late, uh, uh, it came out in 2020. So, really, I mean, pandemic effectively, we could not do any marketing. Last year, uh, Fola and I were planning to be in the US to do some events on the East Coast, at least, you know, Washington uh, and then, but then. He could go to America, but I couldn't go because the UK and the rest of Europe were all banned from. So, you know, I think the first in-person event we did was in Nigeria last year, middle of Nigeria. So we had two events in Nigeria. So everything else has been like this. Either we get called on a podcast or we, we do a Zoom uh, meeting. But that feeling of just basically sitting down somewhere in London, in New York or or anywhere else, you're just signing books for people and people come around. We've not really been able to do that, but, but it's been fine. You know, it's, it's it, it means that we've had to sort of promote the book and get a feedback in a completely different way. So it's come from really random places. Some days, you know, I have a kind of like a Google alert or something. So sometimes I just get like a, an alert say, and I then see that somebody from somewhere completely randomly has written a review of the book, you know, and it's, it really warms the heart. And, uh, and I've been joking that, you know, I mean, I can understand why people write books. Uh, you know, it, it, there are definitely way easier ways to make money. This is not a way to make money, but, you know, it's his own reward. When people engage with your work, we had a guy who read the book, I think he read it, said he read it about three or four times. When I saw his copy, uh, when we went to Lagos and we're doing a book signing, he brought his copy for us to sign. And I've never seen a book so marked up in my life. He had marked pretty much every page. He had bookmarks everywhere. And I just thought, you know, wow, this is our work. Somebody has engaged with in this way, give it a close reading. I mean, somebody did a review recently. It was a very generous review, but then he spotted a small, very small error, just a geographical error that we made. And I thought, you know, the only way you will find that is if you actually paid attention to the book, you know. So fair dues, I, I really have no grudges against that. So yeah, so I think that has been a reception. And then obviously we've got some, um, so the Financial Times uh, did a review of the book as well. Uh, last year, the Guardian newspapers included um, uh, books to help understand the world. That came out of nowhere. We're quite, you know, so we're quite pleased with that. And 
and even now, more than one year after it came out, it's still we're still getting stuff. This is going to this. We have at least two or three events booked this January. So this is one. We've got another one coming up next week, and another one uh, maybe week after. Maybe we just want you to come talk about the book or come talk about a tangential topic, um, that sort of thing. And you know, we got. For a completely random guy, an American guy who's a teacher in Morocco, he asked us to come speak to his students and his Moroccan student because we're teaching them an African class. You know, so things like that have been um, it's been very rewarding and uh, just seeing people engage with the work on their own terms, nobody forcing them, no uh, no big uh, cultural trendsetter saying this is the book you must. We've had a bit of that, but people just coming to the book. Uh, themselves, it, it's it's been really um, rewarding, and I think someone mentioned to me at the time. Uh, uh, I read something um, when when we, just before the book came, I said, you know, sometimes some books are a big hit, where in the first six months of one year it sells massive loads of copies, but that some other books are slow burners, and that over ten years people are still asking you to come talk about the book. You know, so maybe formation will be like that. Uh, at the rate of this is going, um, it looks like, you know, this year. We, I mean, we have nothing major planned, but I'll be surprised if we're still doing um, events and talks all through uh, this year as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, you know, it's everything for you said, but for me personally, I think one thing that I did not anticipate what that was that there would be any kind of nexus between my job and, and this book. So I did not anticipate when we were writing it that there would be any kind of connection at all, except the fact that my name was on the cover of the book. What has happened in practice is that I find, and, and in my job, I'm a banker, I'm an investment banker that works uh, on infrastructure projects in Nigeria and in Africa. And what I find is that I go into meetings with clients, with counterparties, and with you know potential clients, and, and, and I find that they've read the book. Uh, and I find that it, it comes up a lot in, in conversations that they're like, oh, you're that guy that wrote that, that book. Uh, and it's an icebreaker, and and it's just very interesting to see just how interested people, the kinds of people that I deal with in in my work, which is in corporate finance, is generally uh, CEOs and 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 sort of corporate leaders in in the country. Just interesting to see how much they they have found it to be to be interesting uh, and to be influential. Uh, and I've had so many wonderful conversations that that, that I would never. Have imagined uh, to would have would have happened uh, if I had not uh, been involved in, in in this project. So that's been quite interesting for me to see. Okay, last question for each of you. Um, uh, we're talking offline here. I've never been to West Africa. I was supposed to go, and then uh, COVID stopped my tour of West Africa. Um, I do plan to go here. Hopefully, this year uh, is the goal. Um, so it's a two part question. One: What separates Nigeria? from the rest of West Africa, and then two, for people who have never been, give us one tidbit about Nigeria that's, that, 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 that makes you have an affinity for it. Okay, so I think, I'll, let me take the first question and maybe follow up the second one. I think what's the prison I from the rest of West Africa? The energy and the chaos, you know, the, um, that energy is probably unmatched, you know, the, the Nigeria is pulsing under your feet, you know, when you land in the, I, I've lived in the UK now for 18 years, and I feel like over time, my, um, the Nigeria and me, I grew up in Nigeria for the first, uh, my first 25 years, I, I grew up in Nigeria, but over time, I think I've sort of lost a bit of my, um, 
a bit of my edge, if you like. So what it means now is that when I go back to Nigeria, you know, I, I feel, you know, that energy. It's not, I don't, I can't take it for granted. So things that, for example, like I'm, I'm in Lagos, you know, my friends who live there, things they can take for granted. I feel it, you know, instantly that energy, that energy of Nigeria, you can see, I mean, when you see people like, it, it makes you just wonder, you know, if this country ever gets its act right, you know, if we ever get our act right, if we ever direct resources and energy towards human capital development, that sort of thing, you cannot put a lid on how far the country can go, certainly in Africa, you know. So, you know, that that positive energy, people, and it can be, um, Nigerians don't know when they are beaten. They don't, they don't know when they are defeated. It can be a bad thing in the sense that our political leaders, will get away with absolute murder in the sense, you know, that the things that will sink a politician in any other country, you know, in Nigeria, politicians just shrug it off, you know, just because, you know, this quote-unquote resilience of Nigerians, you know, it, it, it's a good and a bad thing, but it just means that people can take so much and that politicians don't, they are not under as much pressure as they should be from people that look. When a, when a leader who wakes up, um, should, should wake up and say, God, you know, I'm in charge of this country of 200 million people, energetic people. I should really be afraid or worried if things go wrong. Yeah, but, you know, politicians, we have some really lazy politicians who don't do much. They just, don't, they just you know, they just leave things as they are, take it one day at a time. Um, that sort of thing. But, but, you know, Nigerians will carry on. They are not, they're never defeated. They get knocked down. They somehow pull themselves back up. So, um, under the right circumstances, under the right conditions and policies, it would be an amazing thing for people who are never defeated, but to be given that um, environment and that um, atmosphere to really channel that energy into uh, something, you know, so you, it's unmistakable. If, the moment you get out at the airport in Nigeria, you feel that energy, you feel that the city pulsing under you and you see it everywhere you go in, in the country. Uh, Ryan, I didn't remember your, your second question, uh, but I want, I, had to, I want to say something about the first one, but please remind me about your second question. Yeah, give me this, uh, this uh, local tidbit about Africa, uh, about Nigeria, rather, that, you know, this, um, that, that, that would be unique to people who have been there to incentivize those who are listening to maybe come or to think more deeply about Nigeria. Okay, well, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. Uh, I mean, I love Nigeria. I mean, I, live, I still live in Nigeria, and I've lived in Nigeria for most of my life. Um, and, you know, there, there are many reasons uh, why I love it, you know, primarily, you know, it's home, right? Uh, and it's, it's, it's where I'm most comfortable in the world, right? Even though I have the opportunity to live probably almost anywhere in the world that I, that I, I would like want to live, but it's where I feel um, the most comfortable, the, the most at ease. Um, and, you know, as Faye mentioned, Faye talked about the energy. Uh, I think that Lagos is an incredibly unique place in the world. I, I you know, I can't, think of anywhere, and I've been many places in the world. I've, I've been to probably 40, at least 40 countries, uh, many of those in Africa, but th there's nowhere else that captures the, the vibe uh, and just captures what Lagos is. Uh, and in many ways, it's a global city because Nigerians travel a lot uh, and Lagos is sort of, you know, central home for, for everybody when they, most people when they come back. Um, it is chaotic, as Faye mentioned, uh, but it's, it's just, a vibe and an energy in many ways, like going to Vegas. You know, I have friends who said that um, going to Lagos is like going to Vegas. Uh, 
really. You know, whatever whatever happens in Lagos stays in Lagos. Uh, and uh, and you see a lot of that, particularly because it's also the sort of entertainment capital of Nigeria. It's the movies capital of Nigeria. Um, and, you know, it is, it is an experience. It, it is quite an experience to spend, say, a week or two uh, in Lagos and, and just go partying. Uh, it's unfortunate that with, with the pandemic, not really put a damper on it for, for a couple of years, but the, this Christmas, December is generally when Lagos is the most lit. Uh, it's very often called uh, Dirty December. And Dirty December in Lagos is something to, to see. Uh, and it sort of starts the second week of December uh, all the way through to the new year. And it's just parties after party after party. And it just never stops uh, for, for the whole of December. And if you want to experience Nigeria, that's probably the ideal. You know, a funny joke is a lot of people move back to Nigeria based on having experienced uh, Deki December. And then, <laughs> and then they realize that it's, it's not like this all year round. You know, this, this, is, this is a very specific thing, but it's a, it's a wonderful place to be in, uh, in, in, in December. And just to, to add to you know, what Faye was saying, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm very optimistic about Nigeria's future in spite of all of the challenges that, that we, we have. I mean, the reason I live here is because in spite of everything, I'm still optimistic. Uh, and it sometimes it's difficult to see the progress um, because it, it's, it's very often clouded by so much bad news. I mean, the, the flow of bad news is, is relentless. But I think that if, you, if you're reading between the lines of your paying attention, uh, particularly if you see what young people are up to, we've talked about technology, um, there is a generation of young people that truly, truly are globally native, that have a different value set, a, a different value system from their forebears, uh, and that are truly interested in becoming global citizens. A lot of them are leaving the country, but a lot of them are staying as well. And I think that you will see that demo, the impact of that demographic switch uh, as the older generation uh, you know, die off. I think you're going to see a major impact and, and a change in how uh, Nigeria is is run and how Nigeria behaves uh, ultimately. Okay, I will put on my calendar to come visit you next December or this December in Nigeria. <laughs> we'll have a book signing. Do that. Okay, do that, Ryan. Okay, so we're going to link to the book in the show notes. Um, obviously, I found you on Twitter, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Anywhere else, should we send people uh, to follow y'all's work? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Google our name. So we've written a number of articles. Uh, we, we have a podcast. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. We had a podcast, the Formation Podcast, that we did uh, in the lead up to the book. So where we basically talked about each chapter, we provided some context. And then we've added a new episode just um, last week. This episode discussed the books we read to write the book, why we read those books, and, you know, what the books were about. So that, that, that was a lot. So we've got about 12 or 13 podcasts in total. I'll definitely ask, you know, it's on yep, iTunes, Spotify, or any, yeah. So, yeah. So definitely, if you listen to the podcast, it helps, again, add an um, additional color to the book, yeah. Okay, great. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for responding to a random Twitter DM, as you said. That's how we got. <laughs> we started with technology. We're going to end with technology. It's been wonderful. Enjoyed it. Thank you guys so much. Really good Thanks. to see you. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Thank you very much.